Okay. Um, but anyway. But anyway. But anyways. So, so anyway. you would think that, that that we don't do one of these for like two years. Seems like two years. But it's been nearly eight, seven or eight weeks, right? Six or seven weeks, something like that. You'd think that we it's, would, it's only it's only been twenty four months, Jack. You think that we would have not done an episode <laughs> for this long, all right? And we could do better to start out the new the the this this fresh new episode with a story about a flying car. You'd think we could do better, but no. Who put this on the list? Jeb. I I did. Jeb. I did. It, it's it's yeah. It's. Um, it's a piece from uh, Jalopnik.com, one of my uh, uh, go-to automotive sites. Yep. Um, but it dates about a month ago. But um, it's it's um, expletive-filled and uh, uh, very on point about um, all the, the periodic hype that uh, we're subject to about uh, flying cars. And um, uh, what set this guy off apparently is uh, uh, a Rob Report article um, about uh, um, a new proposed flying car. And, and the guy's just like, you know, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Stop talking about flying cars. And I got to I got to kind of get on that side. Um, okay, it's, so it's, it's not a story about flying cars. It's a story about not about about not flying cars. Exactly. Well, exactly. It's 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 a it's a yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. There have it's it's been... basically why why we'll never have flying cars. Yeah. Really. It, it is an interesting overview of the variety of designs and 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 whatnots that that have been over time, huh? But uh, yes. Anyways. Yes. It's, uh, um, yeah. It has that going for it. Flying cars, man. Okay. Well, we got that out of the way. We don't need to do that for, again for another 440 episodes. And then the Russians are going to do a, uh, a, a supersonic biz jet. Well, I don't know that uh, the Russians are going to do this. Um, there's a, a – uh, from November, so we haven't done this in a while. Um, anyway, a November article in a publication called AirlinerWatch.com. Um, uh, the headline is Super Rich Wants Supersonic Bomber as Business Jet. And this is kind of the height of, of wishful thinking, I think, uh, where um, somebody, and I'm putting the word somebody in, in uh, uh, finger quotes, um, uh, apparently has made requests, plural, uh, of uh, the, the Russian air, uh, the Russian um, airframe manufacturer Tupolev mm-hmm. uh, to to develop a passenger version, a business jet uh, on the um, Tu one sixty platform. Tu one sixty is um, uh, called a blackjack by NATO. It's a supersonic uh, bomber, a la. Uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, Air Force B-1 bomber, uh, similar designs, uh, similar configuration. Uh, that's what it looks uh, like. Okay, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, um, again, you know, I don't know what these people are smoking, but uh, um, they shouldn't be near an airplane when they do it. It's uh, no, it's got colorful paint, uh, uh, paint, uh, you know, uh, uh, painting on the side of the airplane. I can't quite. Well, it's in Russian, I guess. It's 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 in Russian. Yeah, you know, I, I can't read that either. Um, but um, um, that's that's just again very silly. 
do you, I, I saw, I, don't, I, I was watching a documentary, I don't know if it was a new one or an old one, but I saw some, I was watching some video recently about the, the history of the, uh, of the uh, Concord. And, uh, yeah. you know, and it was sort of bemoaning. It was like, you know, this was such a good idea. Why did it ever go away? All right. Um, my, my it went away because it was, it was too expensive to operate. That's right. Cause it wasn't a good idea. Right? You know, it's like, it well, was, it, it, it was a good idea for a while until fuel prices, um, started getting out of control uh, and maintenance. Made the difference? Okay. You know, I think maintenance also, I think maintenance costs were, were uh, going really high. Uh, it didn't help that they'd had that fatal accident a couple of years before. Right. Yeah. Uh, that kind of, that kind of set the ball rolling downhill as it were. Um, and it took them a couple of years, but, um, um, to figure out that the economics, um, just weren't viable anymore right. and, and uh, ceased operation. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, the accident, obviously tragic, it was just you know bad luck in terms of the of the business history of the um, and, and, and bad timing. Well, yeah, right. Yeah. That's kind it, of what it, I mean. it came. It, it came at this. It came as the uh, spike in fuel prices, petroleum, crude oil prices was uh, starting an escalation that we haven't matched since, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, so the safety issues, the airframes were getting kind of up there in years, although flight hours-wise, they were still low time. I mean, when you cruise at Mach 2 and change, you don't need many hours to get across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, yeah, we'll come back to the Concorde later on. But, uh, but uh, yeah, it just, it was, it was uh, I don't know, I had something I was going to say. But I forget what it was. Uh, and and, and this just, idea with the t- the Tupelo, I mean, if you're going to shoot for converting something to a supersonic business jet, why not make it SR-71? I mean, something that'll really go there fast. There you go. Now you're talking, huh? Yeah. Okay. And, and Yeah. You know, four four passengers at a time. And uh... <laughs> hey, welcome, folks. But but you, they can make like six round trips each day. I know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you right. We'll we'll, we'll lose we'll lose money on every flight, but make it up on the repetitions. Or we'll make it up in volume. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I've really completely forgotten how to do this. Let me just stumble into this and say, <laughs> welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. This is episode number four hundred and forty-four, and we're recording it on Monday, January eighth, twenty eighteen. I'm Jack. And as out of control as we were before hiatus. Well, we'll see. Probably, though. Probably. I'm Jack Hodgson. Episode so far. Episode four cubed. Four cubed. Okay, sure. Yeah, I'll buy that. Four cubed. I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm coming to you today from the exotic metropolis of Lumberton, North Carolina, where I am. (laughs) What offense did you commit to be sentenced to Lumberton, North Carolina? Lumberton, North Carolina is a magical spot that is apparently, well, more than apparently, I've kind of done the math, exactly halfway between Miami and New York City, all right? And, And it touts one of one of the things when you search lumberton in various places is is it says halfway so if you're traveling by 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 car by road from from the you know the northeast to florida this is halfway all right and that's how i happened to discover it originally all right back in the days when i would come down to hidden river by car in two days 
I started staying at a, a particular Marriott that's down here um, that uh, was inexpensive but comfy. So how, how, how are you getting there this time? I am also driving, but this year, okay, this, well. this year I'm taking the making the grand tour. Um, this is actually my second stop um, on the trip, and uh, I have yet yet another stop to make before I finally roll on into Hidden River. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about my first stop um, in a few minutes. But uh, but first of all, um, be- because I haven't done this in so long, I'm on the verge of forgetting to say hello to my two good friends here who are uh, uh, talking to me in our virtual hangar. Uh, uh, that first of all, that was that was Dave Higdon from. From, uh, from the air capital of the world, Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How you been? How you doing? Doing great. Doing great. Uh, rolling into the new year with uh, with a nice backlog of work already. And uh, now that the chill has broken, uh, it's no longer unpleasant to go out and walk the dog. And uh, everybody's Christmas decorations are pretty much down and put away. And... Uh, Got a stack of cigars to smoke that I got over the holidays as gifts and looking forward to it staying warm enough so I can sit out on my front porch and get all the way through one of them. (laughs) I'm not sure what it is that's been keeping you from accomplishing that goal so far. Is it the the cold or the dog or the you can't take the cigars? if I'm smoking a cigar and there's a risk of the wet end freezing between tokes, that's a little bit colder than I want to sit outside yeah. for. And I don't smoke in the house. so Yeah, well, okay. It's your house, man. You can, but, but yeah, okay, that's fine. All right, well, anyways. And my other good friend here in the virtual hangar from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida, is Jeb Burnside. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? I'm spiffy. Um, and Sarasota is halfway between the Florida-Georgia border and Miami, almost. Kind of, sort of, yeah. Yeah, okay. Halfway. Maybe that's what the episode... That's right. Not really. Not not really. (laughs) Episode title will be Halfway, because episode 444 is halfway between the the ultimate final episode and where we started. No, I don't think that's true. 888? You can make it half fast. That would be... (laughs) It would work on several levels. Something like that, right? Was that half fast or... Two words. Half fast. Yeah. One one of the words ends with an F. The other one starts with an F. Right. There you go. You heard him. You know what Half he said. Half fast. You know what, you know what I meant. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, anyways, yeah. what's going on? It's been so long. So, so it's by the way, I, I missed you. Really, all kidding aside. All kidding aside. I want to say I missed talking with you guys. All right. I mean, oh, I, I was I was glad to not do all the production and administrative stuff of putting this podcast together every two weeks um, for a little while, and that part was a relief. But it was I really missed talking with you guys. So I'm 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 happy to hear from you again. What's going on? How are you guys? Dave, go ahead. Uh, I thought I just said, you just did that. Uh, <laughs> you know, alive and well, taking All nourishment. Right. All uh, right, never mind. Keep, That's keeping my, up my periodic right. doses of single malt. Uh, I'm hoping for weather warm enough to get back in the airplane shop and resume progress. What are some of the things I'm, that happened I'm, while we were while we were off? doing something doing other things here um the, you mean they let things happen when we're not podcasting uh how dare they yeah a few a few um the uh the uh c what is it c47 that's being renovated um the uh, the d-day airplane um uh that's all brother is that what it is? it's that's all brother okay that's all brother um is making progress david what's going on what's the latest with that well they uh closing in on a first flight uh 
they've been working on uh, restoring it uh, for over for coming up on three years now. Mm-hmm. It was two two Oshkoshes back when they first drug it out on like the, that. Yeah, on the right. West Tramp, and it, 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 when we were at Oshkosh this, uh, for 2017, we got to see that they'd made a huge amount of progress on getting the airframe back in shape. So the latest it got was uh, the uh, progress is closing in on engine starts. And then after that first flight later this year, and uh, hopefully... We'll get to see it fly uh, in July in, in Wisconsin. That would be nice, but I don't know. I, w- I don't want to get my hopes up here. I, uh, you know, ways well, the goal, the goal, of course, is to uh, cross the pond with it in time for the 75th anniversary of D-Day, which would be June 6, 2019. So hang in there, all you old guys. It's not that far away. Yeah. Uh, and they want to have it lead a commemorative flight across the English Channel, just as it led the uh, well, hundreds of C-47s and colliders that uh, were towed across the Channel uh, on D-Day to drop paratroopers behind enemy lines to land colliders near bridges. Uh, it, it it a massive undertaking, and this was the airplane that led the way. Yeah, I'm just I'm clicking around on the um, CIF website, and there's a December 2017, i.e., last month, video posted. Uh, engine start. That's all, brother. Um, um, and that was apparently an Oshkosh. Um, so work is proceeding and that's the latest milestone is mm-hmm. apparently they ran both, ran both engines. Oh, they did. Okay. Well, that's, that, that's, that is progress because sometimes the engines are, are like one of the bigger problems with these old, old restorations is that the, uh, they can't find parts or what that wasn't that a big problem with doc for a long time was getting, it was, it is a big problem with doc and, and, and I guess maybe to a lesser extent Fifi, but the trick is. The engines for the DC three slash C forty seven are a much more numeral, uh, much more numerous, and much more uh, plentiful. Yeah. Uh, they're they're somewhat more standardized, if you will, than those double compound, super turbocharged, you know, three thousand cubic inch you know corn cobs or twenty eight hundred cubic inch corn cob engines on the on the uh, the B twenty nines. Well, and then it's up there at Bassler in Wisconsin, yeah. where they know a little uh, bit about DC three. They've, they've got a lot of uh, those engines that they've pulled off to convert oh, DC threes yeah. and C forty sevens to turboprop. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. They probably do have a fair number of spare engines floating around up there, because they're part of their big a big part, I guess, or a big chunk of their business is taking those engines off of DC threes and replacing them. Okay. I have to say that yeah, when, it, it, so a couple episodes ago we talked about our friend um Adam, Adam Smith uh leaving the commemorative Air Force to go to uh, a, a new gig. Uh he's working right. for Comic-Con, which I still hate him for. But um I have to admit that part of my the bittersweetness of him leaving commemorative Air Force is he was a one he was maybe the or one of the big um uh you know people make driving this uh, this uh, that's all brother project. And uh, right. he was so so excited about that project, and uh, and realizing that um, even though he might be able to stay in touch with it, he would not be as involved with it. I would imagine, and so uh, um, you know, 
I, I, a lot of people were involved in that project, but I give him a lot of credit for trying to make that thing happen. And uh, you know, so, anyways, well, it would be great. To, I will see it eventually. Um, I just don't. That seems like. Maybe they're making good progress. We did this with Doc for a couple of years. We said, oh, this is, this, this is the summer we're going to see Doc, and it didn't because it takes, takes a while. Why do I think that That's All Brother was on uh, the West Ramp at Oshkosh last year? It was. Or probably yeah, was. that's it, what I thought. I'm sure yeah, they dragged it, it out and, and had it sitting there. Yeah. I'm almost certain they did. I kind of remember it, yeah. Oh, yeah. They were, they were selling tours on it as part of their fundraising, yeah. their ongoing yeah. fundraising yeah. effort. Because it's okay. being worked on right there at Whitman, they just probably dragged right. it. They dragged it over and, and had it on display for sure. Yeah, and this is a lot of this work is not the kind of stuff where you can call on a lot of volunteers and expect it to get done in a timely manner. They're having to raise money to pay for right. the expert work that goes into this kind of restoration, and it should go a lot faster than dock because. First off, it's not a pressurized airframe. Second, as Jeb was pointing out, it doesn't have those finicky compound uh, turbo supercharged engines like uh, B-29s do. Uh, Second, it's just a a smaller project, uh, top to bottom. And this airplane, as bad as as it was, had not been shot all to hell. Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. And it, it, on the engines front, of course, it only has two of them versus four. So, yeah. you know, there's that too. Yeah. So, anyways. Well, yeah. that'll be cool. Whenever it's ready to go, that'll be cool. Um, it's uh, quite a piece of history. Yes, it is. Uh, one other follow-up here. Um, I, so, in the, in the two months that we've been gone, um, there, was, there was one – this is sort of podcast administration. For those of you who support the podcast through Patreon, um, a, a thing happened um, that most of you are already familiar with, and I, I don't want to belabor it here too much. Um, but if we had been doing podcasts, we would have been much more vocal about it. You would have heard from us much more about this. Uh, and you were about to hear from us. Um, we were about to come out of radio silence for a little bit. Um, in order to uh, uh, make some comments on... So Patreon, um, about a month or so ago, Patreon announced that they were going to change the way they charged fees. I'm not going to go into all the details, but they were going to change the way they charged fees uh, for the donations that people make to creators like us. Um, And many of the creators, um, us included, were not happy with the way they were going to do it. And uh, a lot of creators were speaking out. and, And we had actually gotten together on the phone together to talk about how we wanted to what we wanted to say and we were crafting what we were going to say and then like literally the next day patreon announced that they realized they had made a mistake and they completely backpedaled on the whole thing and and for the time being have made no change to the way they charge fees and uh, and and we, i think we are agreed that that that's a, that's the better way to go at this stage of the game um, but to uh, to those of you who support us on Patreon and were confused or perhaps angered by that change, um, we, we, we agree. It was a bad idea, and uh, we're glad that they decided not to go through with it. Um, yeah, they'd already heard from a lot of people by the, the time we started discussing our, our response. Yeah, it was it was and, near uh, I mean, the creator community was just very, very, very um, unhappy with the way it all played out, and uh, and it was and it was doubly weird because it, 
from the interviews I've seen and and the the things I've read about the founders of Patreon, I, they always struck me as being really good people. All right, and so I didn't understand why they would do this in the clumsy way that they did, and it just seemed to me that they would realize their mistake and fix it, and they did. All right, and so I, you know, I mean, it was clumsy, it was awkward, um, and and it cost creators some of their support, um, but um, but they they've they've. They they fixed I mean they didn't fix it but they acknowledged it and they're they're you know gonna, gonna unlike some businesses we yeah. know so anyone who heard the bad things about Patreon um, they were kind of bad um, we feel like they've gone a long ways towards resolving the matter um, we urge people to uh, continue to consider supporting us on Patreon and we'll talk about that a little bit more later in the episode uh, unless you guys want to add anything else to that Patreon misstep no. I think you covered it. I mentioned that today's my uh this is my second stop here on the on the uh 2018 Jack Goes to Florida World Tour. Um so what happened was I it, 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 the weather up in New England everywhere around the country. I mean as as everyone knows it got particularly crazy um in terms of cold for particularly um all over the country and and New England lookout point was no exception. I mean it just got cold. It got as cold as it ever gets all winter long before the first of the year even happened. I mean it was cold. And I don't like that stuff. I just don't like the cold. I have no tolerance for it. Um and uh, I suffered through it for as long as I could, and then I said, "This is it. I'm, I'm bugging out." All right. And so, uh, uh, although I had been planning all along to come down to uh, Florida for my annual visit, um, I left a week early uh, than I than I had planned. And I said, well, "I'm just going to take my time driving down the East Coast because every every year I drive down the East Coast, and there's three or four things that I pass that I go." Well, that's pretty interesting. I should stop someday and spend some time and go there. And so that's what I'm doing this year. Um, I'm stopping at more, more places, and I'm spending a couple nights in each place and just kind of looking around and and, um, and also just like enjoying being away from the um, the single-digit weather up in New England. So stop one. Stop. Stopping to smell the roses, as as it were, as it were, yes. So my first um, my first big stop was uh, I, I overnighted in the Washington D D C area um, a couple nights ago, and uh, spent my my day on the ground there. And I went to this first time ever for me. I went to the Udvar Hazy uh, Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Um, Good. And, oh, out at Dulles. Yeah, out at Dulles, and uh, and I had always heard that it was a great collection and a great presentation and a great museum um uh and boy it sure was i I, and i it was just pretty pretty amazing um a a few thoughts and i'm putting together a video i shot a bunch of video and i'm gonna put together a video of some of the highlights of what i saw and 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 what i liked but a couple of them um it's really big first of all i assume that both of you have been there right yes yes okay no um I knew it was big because that was the whole point of doing it out of Dallas was to have enough room to you know to pre- present all these aircraft. Well, the, well, the the, the government kind of balked at the idea of giving over the rest of the National Mall to another museum. Yeah, and it would have been because this is a big, big collection. There's a lot of airplanes there, all right. And although a lot of them are the kind of normal, you know, some, relatively small aircraft that that you see, there's some big examples there as well. Wow, all right. So the the in general, that was my first impression. That was an overriding impression the whole time I was there. It's a big, big place, a big collection, this big hangar. Wow, um, the hangar alone, man. If the hangar had been empty. 
idea. I could have spent an hour just examining the hangar structure. The architecture of this hangar and the engineering of building this great big um, half-tube structure um, is is pretty amazing. Um, but, well, it's, uh, it's a, it was a giant size Quonset hut. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, a little bit more sophisticated engineering than your basic Quonset hut. But, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I was walking, so I'm wandering around at one point in, over the one of the sides of the of the of the hangar, looking at various looking at various exhibits, um, and and you know, you're going from one display case to another, looking at this or that, you know. And I happen to be looking at at engines, jet engines and piston engines, uh, of over the years, and and then I suddenly came to this display of some sort of iron structure. I thought maybe it had something to do with landing gear or all right and I suddenly realized that I wasn't looking at an exhibit I was looking at the foundation of one of the arch beams that makes up the <laughs> I mean it, it was it was impressive and beautiful right? it was just amazing this this I beam, I don't know if that maybe it wasn't me an I beam, but this serious structural truss arch thing that came down to the floor and was bolted on a concrete pad and it was just very impressive the building alone was pretty cool but the airplanes were even cooler uh, a couple that really caught my attention and my video is going to go through into even more but i just wanted to mention a couple uh, one airplane i saw which was really interesting was a, a sikorsky jrs1 i don't know if you guys are familiar with this airplane um on some level it's your basic amphib it's sort of like a catalina kind of style aircraft um and uh, but the thing I found particularly interesting about this particular aircraft, and and this this kind of story, is repeated in other airplanes there in the display. This particular amphib was not not this model. This particular airplane was at Pearl Harbor the day of the attacks. All right. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've heard about that. All right, and and it survived the attacks and was one of of a of a, a, a flight of aircraft that launched out of Pearl Harbor after the attacks off to try and find the uh, Japanese naval force. Um, and so this actual airplane was at Pearl Harbor, survived it, and then went off into combat right afterwards. And I just, I, that kind of history fascinates me and, 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 and intrigues me. And uh, um, they're, I can't tell whether or not they're trying to complete a restoration of it. It's, it's out on the um, exhibit. There was a, um, there was a video um, over near the restoration shop uh, talking about them working on this airplane, but the actual airplane is now out on the main floor, all right? Um, and it apparently hasn't been there very long because it's not in the little signage. You know, they have signage that shows the outline of every airplane in the place and, and what's where and so forth, and this airplane isn't on that this main, main signage. So it must be new. Um, it must have been moved out there recently. Um, and it's far from restored. I mean, it's got a lot of damage to it, um, particularly skin damage. And uh, um, it's... Uh, it's just which aircraft are you talking about now? Still, is, the still Sikorsky, the Sikorsky JRS one. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, it's just, I, I just, I found it very moving that this this was an actual aircraft that was at and then went out to uh, respond to mm-hmm. the attacks at Pearl Harbor. That was kind of interesting. Um, there is um, a Boeing seven hundred seven on display there. And I haven't quite internalized all the history here, but my sense is, and you guys probably know better than I, I this is basically the first one, the prototype, the an early <clears throat> demo model. Dash 80? Yeah. Dash 80? Yes. Yeah, that's the 707 prototype, yeah. Yeah. So um, 
that's kind of interesting. I mean, because this was an airplane. In my view, the 707 was, well, you know, and I've talked over the years about my list of airplanes that are just great designs, that just they got it right, all right? And I think the 707 was, is, is definitely on that list. Um, so th- this was there. Um, I, I was a little confused about the nomenclature here because I wasn't real. So I've heard of Dash, is it Dash 8 or Dash 80? It, it, but I've heard of Dash this. 80. Dash 80. Um, and um, the the signage on this aircraft refers to it not as a Boeing 707. The the actual you know descriptive signs talk about it being a um, what a 367-80 or something like that. That's correct. It, it, That's exactly right. How, how does that nomenclature work? Because it, um, it well, it worked. Um, keeping in mind this was a prototype, and this aircraft never went into service. But as I understand the story. Um, they used the the 367-80 nomenclature as kind of as kind of subterfuge against um, uh, corporate espionage by com- various competitors. They didn't want uh, Boeing didn't want you know people like McDonnell Douglas or or, or Douglas I should say uh, for example to uh, know that they were working on um, the type of aircraft they were working on. Instead, they wanted them to think it was just an offshoot of the, the model uh, 367, which in fact is the case, could became, I should say, the KC-97. Right, yeah. So, uh, so this is, now this is that's, that's, that's what I understand anyway. This wouldn't by any chance be the airplane that did the barrel roll, would it? I think it is actually yes. According to the Wikipedia page, it is. Very cool. That's very cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, I stood there. I, I, you couldn't reach it. They do a good job of keeping them out of hands reach, but uh, but uh, yeah. yeah. So, I, as Tupper would have it, I didn't lick it, but. Um, uh, <laughs> and you got to understand, you got to understand, right? I am not one of the people who buys into this whole Tupper, Dave Allen, licking an airplane and you own it thing. All right. But there's one or two airplanes at this museum. I'm, I, I might've wanted to lick. All right. It was some really cool airplanes there. So the 707 was there. You just keep that away from me, okay? <laughs> the 707 was there. Uh, one really weird airplane that I'd seen in pictures and heard stories of over the years but never actually seen an example of was the Langley Aerodrome. All right? Uh, the Langley Aerodrome. So um, 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 I'm blanking on Langley's first name. Um, but uh, Samuel. Samuel Langley um, was uh, one of the great aviation pioneers back then in the uh, you know the Wright Brothers era kind of thing and was developing at the same time and didn't quite pull it together. And it all, it's a very complex story in lots of different ways. But just this particular aircraft, right, which he tried desperately to become the first powered flight aircraft and, and, and was not successful. Um, it's a really weird airplane. I mean, it's just a really weird looking airplane. Yeah. Um, well, and Langley was involved with uh, with Alexander Graham Bell and uh, oh, Jiminy, uh, the guy that was uh, instrumental in the oh, uh, uh, just blanking out here, the uh, yeah National Geographic Society. Oh, okay. Gilbert Grosvenor and. Uh, they were, uh, yeah, and that was at the heart of the whole Wright brothers controversy. With yeah. yeah, oh yeah, they were determined to beat these guys, yeah. uh, and after the Wright brothers succeeded, uh, 
they were determined to uh, to refute that success to yeah. to, to to muddy the water about whether they'd really done it. Uh, kind of like we've seen politicians do over climate change today. Yeah. Okay. What they did was so doubt about what you know. Right. Well, I've heard people say that uh, that that they didn't really fly; they just drug it down the beach. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of campaign went on. Right. But this language. Yeah, there's a whole. I'm sorry. There's a whole Wikipedia. Well, there's a um, Wikipedia page ascribed to the uh, right flyer, and there's a subsection of that uh, dealing with the uh, discussions, shall we say, with mm-hmm. the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the Langley error, they call it the, an aerodrome. Apparently, is what they they called the air, aircraft at the time. The word doesn't kind of make sense to me as a as <clears> the name of an airplane anymore, but. It was different back then. Well, um, remember, we didn't have airports exactly. yet. So. Yeah, so I understand that. Um, but it's a, just an interesting, weird-looking aircraft, and there's kind of like no surprise that it didn't fly, if you ask me. Um, it, it's, uh, but, uh, and, and it, it didn't was, even float well. Yeah, yeah, it didn't even float well. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't do anything well. Yeah. The reference folks, went by the way, the, is that they, it went in, off a couple the of its crashes, that, it went into the water, is my, I think what David's getting at here. It, well, it went off the end of that cruiser right into the Potomac. Yeah, right. Yeah. Just like, yeah. Like a, I think one of the reports of the time referred to it as a lead sinker or something like that. But, but it's an interesting airplane, and there, and there was one there on display. And I, it's not clear to me whether that was in some sort of original. I mean, it can't be an original, but uh, but uh, there was a reproduction of it there, and that, it was really interesting to see it in full scale, um, hanging, um, you know, in the uh, in the air there at the uh, at the museum. Um, just a couple more. Um, I could go on all day, obviously, about all. Yeah, the you could there. because of that because that museum is that good. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Um, one of the things I liked a lot um, that um, I wish I had been there on a weekday. I was there on a Sunday, so um, or a Saturday. It was a weekend, um, and so it was not uh, not active. But the, you can look through glass down from the second level into the restoration shop. Uh, where they're oh, yeah. working on on you know all sorts of different projects, all right, and just kind of and and because it was a weekend, there was nothing going on, which is kind of sad. I wish that there had been something going on, or even tours would have been awesome, right? Um, one of my favorite airplanes was one that wasn't even on display. They're doing restoration on a B twenty six bomber there that just is. Uh, um, I'm a big fan of B twenty five bombers, and B twenty six is different, but similar and. Um, it has very very sleek lines. Then I just kept staring at the, the the front cockpit to the nose portion of this aircraft and how 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 uh, just um, elegant and, and and beautiful it was. The B twenty six was nice. Um, really really quite different than a B twenty five too. Yeah, yes yeah, it is. It's sort of in the same, similar category in terms of size and mission and whatnot, but a it, different airplane. Well, the twin engine medium bomber. Right. Uh, right yeah. But the. Uh, 26 was a, a Glenn Martin company manufactured airplane. Before I finish with the aircraft that made the biggest impression on me, just a couple of, of, of obligatory. Um, so um, the the uh, atomic attack uh, B-29, um, Enola Gay, um, is, of course, yeah. on display there um, quite famously. and uh, in, in, in its entirety. Yeah, yeah. And I have to confess that it, it I wasn't, all that excited by that, um, and I think it, it, it was tainted by the fact that I saw two airthy, airworthy ones sitting next to each other right? <laughs> just last summer. Yeah, that, 
it does kind of dim the speciality. You know, and it's kind of like, you know, okay, this is another one, and it's got great history. I mean, not great history, but but significant history, I guess, is how you might put it. Um, but, uh, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, okay, <laughs> I've seen those. <laughs> I've seen them flying. What do I need? So that was – but that was there, and, I, you know, props to the people who managed to get that that on display. Um, there was a, 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 a blackbird there. Um, David alluded to blackbirds earlier. Um, I've seen those before. I've been been up close with with retired blackbirds in the past. Um, there is a Concorde there that was kind of interesting to get under, you know, walk around and and I guess we didn't get exactly underneath it because they don't let you underneath them. But uh, that was a Concorde there. Air France uh, liveried uh, Concorde uh, was there. Um, so there's a lot of great airplanes, and I could just go on. But but my but the airplane the, the aircraft that gave me the biggest impression was the. Discovery Space Shuttle, the Space Shuttle Discovery, um, which is on display in in a sort of separate uh, hangar that they call, I guess they call it the Space Hangar or something like that, all right? Um, and oh my gosh, all right? I've never been yeah. up yeah. close with a Space Shuttle before. Um, and I big, was, aren't they? I was taken aback by how big it is. It's way bigger than I ever had ever imagined it to be. Um, I happened to approach it f- uh, while I was on one of the second level um, catwalks. Um, and it was still towered over me. I mean, it, you know, and I'm standing yeah, there looking at yeah. it, um, and how how long it is, and how high that tail goes up in the uh, you know, up up above the ground, and um, and then you know, going back da- going down to the so- so-called ground level and walking around the edge of the uh, of the barriers to to get as close as I could, um, and just to kind of see the wear and tear, and to see all those all those heat tiles. Um, and, uh, um, and, and to just imagine this thing doing its thing. And, uh, it, apparently the discovery was one of, if not the most traveled of all the space shuttles. It, it flew as m- more hours or more missions than, yeah, know, that, could, that could well be. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah and, I think uh, you're right. I, it was just very, very impressive. So, uh, um, Anyways, uh, th- that's probably more than anybody really cares about, but my, 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 I, I went over, th- you know, and I, so it was a whatever it was Saturday Saturday morning Saturday afternoon and I, I knew that they were open till about five thirty in the afternoon and I was trying to plan my day and I'm thinking well how long you know am I gonna you know because I, I was in downtown Washington a couple of years ago and did the downtown air and space and like zipped I mean I'd been there before that's part of it but I kind of zipped through that one in an hour or less you know I mean I kind of saw what I wanted to see and so I'm thinking you know am I going to get out to Uvarhazi and be done in 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 ninety minutes all right. Uh, I was there. For, no, I was there for four hours. All right, and I'm yeah. basically just starting to get you know weary, and and I needed to you know to to take a break, you know, um, the, and and you just could go back, and it's it's one of those things, you know, it's like like we always say about Oshkosh, you're never going to do Oshkosh in one year, you're just never going to do it in one year, and and you're just never going to do Udvarhazi in one visit. All right, um, it's just yeah. you're never going to yeah. get everything out of that. You're just going to go back. Never going to happen. Over and over and over again um, to to just get a little bit more and to get this or that or you know it's just I wish I was in a position where I could go more often I I, I and I I wish I hadn't put it off so long it was very cool it was very cool I'm babbling now but uh, yeah C- couple of notes real quick yeah go ahead um, before Udvarhazi uh, there was of course the downtown the the Smithsonian on the Mall uh, Air and Space Museum. Um, but there was also, and I think perhaps it's still in oper- limited operation, but the uh, so-called Paul Garber Silver Hill facility in Maryland, yeah, which was which was part of the Smithsonian. That's where they did all the restoration work. Ah, okay. 
and and, 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 and stored a lot and, of it. And things. stored a lot of stuff. Um, I was fortunate enough to go through there back in, I guess, in the 80s. Um, and somewhere in my collection of, of – um, collection of putting finger quotes also um is a uh, still i took the 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 enola gay was in pieces in a warehouse mm-hmm. um the the wings and the engines and, and the fuselage was in three or four pieces and uh, one of the pieces of course was the front section of the cockpit so somewhere some bulkhead somewhere behind the cockpit uh, and be in front of the wing, that's where they separated that portion of the fuselage. And you could literally walk up, uh, and, and I've got a picture looking into, into that hole at the cockpit uh, of the Enola Gay from, again, back in the day. I, I could not begin to find it. Um, the other just real quick piece of information, if you want to get up close and personal with a Concorde, mm-hmm. Boeing, Boeing Field's Museum of Flight has a Concorde you can walk through. Yeah. Oh, really? Uh, yes. So yes. does the Musée de l'Air at Le Bourget uh-huh. Airport in Paris. But wait a minute. Uh-huh. Boeing's museum has a Concorde? They, they, don't, yes. have, they yeah. don't have an SST. They don't have, because Boeing was the one of the – wasn't Boeing the, the company that was trying to Bo- make the U.S. SST? And, the Boeing SST never – I don't think they ever – I, co- never, I know it never did, but I, w- I would imagine that yeah. if they were going to have one of these, they'd have one of those. But uh, you, you can go walk yeah. through it. In, in C- uh, this is up in Seattle, you're yeah. saying. This is in Seattle, Seattle Boeing Field uh, Museum of Flight, yeah. which is a very, very nice museum. It is a nice yeah, museum. Really there's a, so there's a lot of ago. really cool yeah. stuff there. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. And if you fly in, you get to go right past the uh, Space Needle. I mean, like on, if on final to – and we actually landed at Boeing Field. And, uh, and, and on the day we went there, the approach brought us – we were like right – You sure you're thinking of uh, um, uh, Boeing Field or SeaTac? I'm pretty sure I'm thinking of Boeing Field. SeaTac's further on, isn't it? You overfly Boeing to get to SeaTac? This was with my buddy in his arrow. This was not flying commercial. This was uh, okay. Okay, um, may well be. I I didn't. I haven't flown into to Boeing Field, so I don't. I don't know. Yeah. It was a long time ago. Maybe it's not as yeah. as as. Maybe maybe they moved the Space Needle. <laughs> okay, and now I'm gonna have to look at the map. But uh, anyways. <laughs> uh, so that's how I spent my Saturday. Um, yeah, that's, that's and, uh, well, well worth worthwhile fun. Hi, this is Jack. We here at Uncontrolled Airspace are very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. There are two simple ways that you can contribute to this podcast. You can make a one-time, non-repeating donation by using PayPal. It doesn't need to be very much. As little as 10 or $15 is a big, big help. Or you can make an automatically repeating per-episode pledge with Patreon. With the online service Patreon.com, you can pledge as little as $1 per episode, put limits on your per-month contribution, and change or cancel your pledge at any time. For more information about how you can support this podcast in one of these ways, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. That will take you to a page with details on both these support methods. Thanks. Okay, um, what else? We're actually reaching the end of our allotted time here. I wanted to talk a little bit about this. Do you guys know anything more about this uh, um, um, fatal fatality crash at, uh, where was it? Bartow, Sac- Florida. Uh, yeah, was it Bartow or, Barto. was, it, or was it Orlando? Which, which one? Which, which one? 
Uh, the one that's on the list here. Let me see here. Which one? Several is? deaths after plane attempted takeoff yeah. at airport. Yeah, that's at Bartow. That was at Bartow, yeah. Okay, Bartow. Um, this is the one where he basically tried to take off in what was described as zero-zero visibility, right? Uh, I'm looking at the NTSB pre- prelim on this. Yeah. Uh, this was a this was a uh, Cessna 340. Um, weather reported weather at the time. Um, observed weather, I should say. Uh, calm winds. Uh, visibility less than one quarter statute mile in fog. Overcast cloud layer at 300 feet. Um, I, I don't know if there's a temperature dew point spread here on this. I don't see one, uh, but I'm guessing they were identical. Um, basically, an instrument takeoff. Right. Um, uh, all five aboard died. The aircraft um, is, is not known exactly what happened because although there were people on the field at the time, they did not witness the accident because of the visibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, but definitely crashed on takeoff, came down on the airport property. Um, we don't know yet what happened here. Uh, we don't know if there was a mechanical. We don't know if uh, it was simply a, a failure to um, uh, properly execute the zero-zero takeoff. Uh, we simply don't know yet. I, I, I agree with that completely. The I don't know. I'm no instrument pilot, and I, I don't know this stuff, but I, the mainstream media reports on this all kept trying to suggest that it was wildly reckless to even consider taking off in that bad visibility, all right? And that somehow the visibility was the cause of the crash. And and it seems to me, what little I know about this stuff, seem, that felt unlikely to me. Um, because assuming he maintained directional control properly, you know, was stayed on this more or less on the run on the center line to get airspeed and then lift off. And it sounds like he got in the air. Does the, does the prelim describe in any way, shape or form how high he might've gotten or anything like that? It doesn't, it doesn't say because they couldn't, they don't know. Um, I'm sure that there were, you know, devices on board, um, that recorded that, whether or not they'll be able to extract that data is another question. Um, uh, you know, zero zero. T- you use the word um, reckless, and I, I would not. And I, I, I'm not. I'm not putting words in your mouth. You, you said that the the coverage uh, seemed to describe this as being a reckless act. Yes, I I, I disagree with that. Um, and let's just be clear here. You disagree that it was reckless, or you disagree that the coverage was characterizing it as reckless? I disagree with the, that it was reckless. Oh, I do too. Uh, I, that's my point. It had, a high, it had a higher risk yes. than taking off in severe clear, mm-hmm. but with the proper training and the proper um, skills experience it was not reckless right that's uh, my that's my sense of it as well yeah for what it's worth yeah. Yours is people do especially in part nine one people do zero zero takeoffs all the time i've done a couple uh, uh before where you can basically see three or four centerline stripes down the runway and that's about it well okay so everything's the same you just can't see so uh accelerate on the center line you get to lift off speed. You lift off. You're automatically on instruments. Positive rate is key. Yes. You've got to have a positive rate of climb. And in these kinds of conditions, you're probably on top of the low low fog layer in 500 feet. Mm-hmm. 
And as, as long as you maintain a positive rate of climb, you're golden. Yeah. And that's kind of my point is, is that, that assuming they didn't like lose directional control while on the takeoff roll and, and, you know, careen off the runway and hit things. If, if they manage to get airborne, all right, pretty much as soon as the soon, pretty much soon after they're airborne, they're basically an IMC. They're flying an IMC, all right, which is yeah. you're highly trained to do, and 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 you have well, a high. They were taking off an IMC. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess my whole point here is that the mainstream media reports suggested that the zero zero on the ground was the cause of the crash. And and it seems to me more likely that the cause of the we're going to discover that the cause of the crash was something else that uh, that he didn't fly well in IMC that he stalled it or or, or that they had a, a, a structural failure or a control failure or something like that that would have happened if he was at ten thousand feet in IMC um, maybe you see what I'm getting or at would here? have happened it, if it had been CAVU. Yeah, I, I just I, the, the part of this I differ with, and the part of this that's got me all in an uproar is them making such a big deal about the zero zero visibility on the ground. That's my yeah. issue. Right? Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. Know, I have the same same uh, reaction, if you will. I, I happened to watch a video of the local sheriff who gave an impromptu press conference um, at the airport the day of the accident, and. The local sheriff, who apparently is not a pilot, uh, was very um, um, perplexed, surprised, um, uh, whatever the word would be, that anyone would attempt to take off in those conditions, Um, which is doing a disservice in a lot of different areas. First of all, obviously, he should stick to law enforcement, not aviation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, um, we again, as I said earlier, we don't know. This could have been misset pitch trim. This could have been an engine failure. There was apparently a pop, P.O.P., heard by people on the airport shortly after the airplane departed, really? and then they heard the, then they heard uh, uh, an explosion, um, and and um, went to find the wreckage. Mm-hmm. Um, but what that means is anybody's guess right now. Um, we simply don't know. So uh, I, I'll be interesting. I just wanted to comment. Is there, I, you know, I guess we're of a, a, both of a, the same impression that that to, to point the finger directly at zero zero on the ground is not accurate. It doesn't seem right. Doesn't seem right. Doesn't pass the no. test. It it may well wind up being a contributing factor in it. It, it may well. We do, we don't know because we don't know anything about the mechanics of the airplane. Whether everything was running at the time. Uh, to, to, to counter this a little, just a little bit, I find it completely understandable that the observers there who saw the conditions that morning and, and people like the sheriff would be surprised that anybody would attempt to take off in those conditions. Not that taking off is all that difficult, but if you have to come back. Oh, yeah. You, you, you're in a real bind there if you're having to come back down to to uh, a 500-foot thick fog layer and depending solely on the altimeter to get you the runway without pranging the gear. Uh, you know, that's part 91. We don't have, we don't have uh, go, no go limits. 
like uh, 135 and 121 operators do. Uh, the op specs for the airlines, they all set out standards for what visibility they're allowed to try to leave in and what they're tried to uh, uh, able to try to land in. And one of the factors in their departure uh, calculus is if you have to come back. Right. Uh, transitioning when you can't see the runway centerline, and as Jeb pointed out, he might have been seeing three or four stripes there when he was starting the takeoff roll. But as he accelerates, it's going to wind up going into a blur. He's not going to see any of that. Uh, and then transitioning from watching the instruments, you know, from looking out at the center line to watching the instruments and then rotating and trying to keep everything straight and level. That's, that's a tough nut. Mm-hmm. That's a tough nut when you're starting out with no horizon. It's tough to do when you have a horizon and transition into the clag. Really, <laughs> but when you're starting out in the clag, uh, that's a real choice. So I'm I'm not surprised that people would be shocked and amazed that somebody would even attempt to fly under those conditions. I'm not sure I would. I have done takeoffs at ceilings of 200 feet and visibility of a, a of a half a mile. And I wasn't at all happy with doing it, and I didn't unpucker for about another 100 miles. Uh, but I did it knowing that I could go to a different airport five miles away where those conditions didn't exist if I had to land. Right. If I'd had to come back there, whew, right. Yeah. God help me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as I say, I, yeah, like, like Dave, I've, I've performed takeoffs in, in similar conditions. Um, again, the difference between reckless and risky, um, is, is, uh, you know, perhaps a very semantic fine line for some, um, but, um, so is, you know, flying over the Gulf of Mexico on, on a single engine. So is a lot of, a lot of the other things (laughs) that we do, um, with airplanes on a day, on a regular basis. Um, there are elements of risk, there are levels of risk, and there are, are acceptable and unacceptable levels of risk. Yeah. Um, in this case, it was clearly an acceptable risk for this pilot. For all we know, he's done this countless times. Yeah. Uh, one. Two, there are several airports in very close proximity to Bartow. Winter Haven is one. Lakeland is another one. Yep. Um, uh, there's Sebring that's further inland. There's Sarasota, Plant, Tampa. Plant City. Exactly. There's a bunch of airports um, that probably had different. I remember that morning. It was it was Christmas Eve morning, and uh, Bartow's not that far from here. Um, I, it was you know a low overcast here. Um, maybe some. Fog. I don't remember the specifics, but um, I'm sure there were airports that were open that were uh, obtainable um, with a twin-engine airplane. Yeah. Um, so that in and of itself doesn't really give me pause. I, I you know, if the weather was a factor, and I'm, I'm kind of inclined to think that, yeah, it probably was a factor, um, to what extent was it a factor? Again, was it a matter of he misset the pitch trim and, and – in transitioning from from visual to instruments, or 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 let's put it another way, um, in transitioning from from uh, visual to instrument control, was the artificial horizon spooled up enough? 
yeah. uh, was with all the instruments uh, reacting as they should have been. I don't know how the airplane was equipped. Um, some gyros need a little bit of time mm-hmm. uh, to spool up. Older gyros need more time. Yeah. So there's all kinds of little questions like this. You could have had an engine failure. That could have been the pop. Right. Uh, and, well, and that, mishandled and, the engine failure. And, and, you know, there's all expect, kinds of yeah. things. And I expect that information is going to come out on so, at some to yeah. some degree. Uh, oh, yeah, it definitely exactly. will. And and the 340, that's a that's a pretty complex airplane, as even as twins go. Um, so it, there's there's volumes of areas where things could have gone haywire that brought him crashing back down to earth. But the fact that he didn't get outside the airport fence. Uh, really nags at me. Whatever happened happened quickly. Yeah. Or, I mean, or you can see taxi lights in some of the crash photos. Yeah. Uh, whatever happened either happened quickly or happened um, happened before he advanced the throttles for takeoff. If if that makes any sense. Uh, in other words, there's a mis misset gyro. Um, uh, a, uh, some system failure that he didn't recognize or, or wasn't aware of, so to speak. Um, this could have been something that happened, you know, five flights earlier that was just catching up with him. Mm-hmm. Who knows yeah. at this stage? Yeah. yeah. So, okay. Um, maybe we'll come back to this. We'll see how it goes, but, uh, uh, I'm sure we'll revisit this one again. This is, this is one of those that gets attention within the industry, within the community. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, there'll be a lot of ink spilled on this one. Okay. Um, I'm going to jump ahead here. Um, shout outs. Any shout outs here? There's a couple things on the list. I don't shout know if anybody wants to grab on any of these. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, well, I want to know which one Jeb goes for. Go ahead, Jeb. Okay. Pick one. Have any chair. It doesn't make any difference. Just pick one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but the music's going to stop and no, I might no, no, not be able David, to get David, back in uh, my Steinberg. chair. What was it David Steinberg? Uh, is that his name? David uh, Higdon. You're the one to know this. David, is it, the comic's name was David Steinberg? Yeah, there was a comic, David Steinberg. Yeah, yeah. he had a famous routine called The Psychiatrist, and he invites the patient into his office when there's like six chairs. And he says, pick a chair, and it doesn't make a difference. Whichever chair you like, you know, there's no, no pressure, no nothing, you know. It's like, <laughs> Why did you pick that chair? No, no. And then, he, and the, and the, <laughs> and then the, the patient sits down, and he, and he points a finger, and he says, psychopath. You know, it's like, so uh, anyways, um, pick a, pick a shout out, Jeb. I want to see which one you go for. Well, I have comments on both of them. Yes, I'm uh, sure so let me do. do. <laughs> <laughs> if let it just, wasn't, if it wasn't him, it was going to be me. Yeah, okay. So yeah. go ahead. Uh, l- l- let me take the first one and I'll set the stage and Dave, you can chime in anytime okay. you want. Knock them down. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Um, um, news comes within the last week. That uh, U.S. Representative Bill Schuster, Republican of Pennsylvania, is retiring. Bill Schuster is chairman of the uh, House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. He is also the chief, um, I'll call it antagonist, chief supporter of the uh, uh, ATC privatization proposals. Mm-hmm. Um, as we've talked about this uh, separately and in the context of FAA reauthorization uh, in, in previous episodes. And uh, I actually have a couple of feelers out to people um, to uh, who are a little bit closer to things on Capitol Hill than I am uh, about what – well, let me back up. Schuster um, has re- announced his retirement. Mm-hmm. 
uh, at the at the end of yes, well, there is all that at the end of twenty eighteen. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, he's going to uh, retire, uh, and uh, uh, someone else will run for that seat. The question is, and I have some knowledge of uh, some experience, I should say, um, uh, w- with uh, with that committee uh, and with his uh, his father, who used to hold the seat and also used to be uh, chairman of the Transportation Infrastructure Committee. And I just kind of, sort of, I kind of think I know how these how these gentlemen think. And um, my supposition is that Schuster is going to be putting on a big full court press uh, all year long to get ATC privatization through the House uh, and and through the Senate. And uh, uh, I think that's this is perhaps a, a very ominous development for this proposal. Um, I think it means that it's all or nothing uh, in a lot of different ways for Schuster. And I think uh, um, knowing how connected and and powerful he is in that Congress and with that committee, that uh, it's a point of uh, a time of maximum uh, um, exposure uh, Mm -hmm. to the industry, uh, to the um, uh, – certainly to general aviation uh, for ATC privatization in some form or fashion to become a reality. David? A hundred percent agree that this is going to be a hellacious year on that front. Really, that's uh, very interesting. Okay, go ahead. Well, this is this is uh, Congressman Schuster's swan song session of Congress. He's he was going to get rotated out of the committee chairmanship because of uh, House rules on how long you could hold a chairmanship for any given committee. So he's going to lose the chairman's seat at the end of this uh, session, which is at the end of December. Uh, and he was going to be back to being a regular committee member where his influence would still be noteworthy, but not as uh, strong as it is as a chairman. So he's been working. He's been working the sideboards for the last few months, trying to bend some guys into supporting it, who've either been lukewarm or unwilling to sign off. He's been doing some horse trading, trying to find the right combination of "I'll give you this if you'll give me that," uh, which makes us really kind of dangerous on the House side. And he's not going to let up. Uh, I, I'll predict here and now that you may be looking at the next lobbyist to join the staff of Airlines for America in 2014 or 2019. No, you don't uh, think so, do you? Come on. <laughs> well, it, it, his lady friend already works there. I so, understand. I'm being facetious. Uh, yes. So this is this is dangerous territory uh, in terms of a guy who knows how to pull the levers and, and manipulate the house rules to get something slipped into something, tacked onto something uh, without it going through any formal vetting. Although his bill has already had hearings and was voted out of committee pretty much along party lines. Uh, I don't think he's going to succeed in the end because the opposition is so strong, it's so widespread, and the Senate's where the opposition is being noted more seriously than it has been in the House. 
but we can't let up. We no, can't let up. We can't relent. Uh, no compromises on this. This is a public asset, and the idea that a cash-strapped government just got a tax bill that's going to add a trillion <laughs> and a half bucks to the national debt, would the same people would hand off a multi-billion-dollar operation to a private entity at no cost to them is just unfathomable. So, kitties, keep those cards and letters going. Keep those phone calls going. You're going to be hearing this from us all bloody year. Yeah, I, I, my uh, editorial in the uh, February issue of Aviation Safety was basically uh, this. And, and my point was that for once and for all, we need to stick a fork in this. And that means getting to the phones and 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 getting getting in, in the, the faces, getting up in the grill mm-hmm. of your elect your federal elected officials, and and putting your foot down and saying not only no but hell no, and sc- screw you, strong letter to follow, and and we gotta we gotta put the fork in this one. Yeah, that it's, doesn't it's mean be, it's gonna won't... be this year. Sorry. Yeah, it doesn't mean it won't come back in subsequent years. But this is the point of maximum exposure. Yeah. Okay. We'll we'll keep an eye on this one for sure. Does one of you want to say goodbye to Huerta? Go ahead, Chad. Well, I just wanted to note, uh, uh, for the record, and not so much in passing, but certainly for the record, uh, that um, um, Administrator FAA Administrator Michael Huerta uh, is no longer uh, FAA Administrator. Mm-hmm. Um, his his five year term expired over the weekend. Um, the uh, deputy uh, administrator Elwell, let me let me find it again. I um, uh, can't find it. Um, we have an acting administrator. Da- yeah, so. Daniel Elwell. I'm sorry. Uh, is will serve as is beginning uh, began over the weekend serving as acting administrator. He is um, he was a former. Uh, deputy administrator at the FAA, um, <clears throat> and uh, his background is uh, Air Force and uh, uh, American Airlines pilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also uh, was with Airlines for America, um, which is the uh, major airline uh, trade group, which um, is Foursquare in support of ATC privatization. So you can kind of sort of see some linkage going on here. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, between uh, uh, now Elwell, now the head of the FAA, and uh, um, uh, this particular uh, uh, topic. Uh, if I were a betting man, um, I would bet that Elwell will serve out at least to the end of, of 2018 as deputy, or I should say as acting administrator really? at okay. the FAA. Simply because the Trump administration is so dysfunctional, they can't develop a credible nominee for that slot. And that's what I wanted to ask you about was, I mean, yes, given that, that we're in kind of non-standard days right now, the, 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 the routine way this would work would be that the president would appoint a, a new administrator who would then go through a confirmation process. Is that how it works? That's exactly yeah. right. And in, in, in normal days, the nomination would have been made late last year. Yeah. Um, and uh, hearings would begin this week, mm-hmm. um, f- leading toward um, confirmation by the Senate and uh, uh, installation of a new uh, administrator. Um, none of that has happened. And again, uh, I'm going on record saying I don't think it's going to happen all year. 
I don't on the other it. hand, it's not totally un, unheard of for a, a lower-level um, executive to be the acting administrator for a while. That happens somewhere. Well, that's, that's, that's how Huerta became administrator. Right, right. If yeah. you recall, it's, it's been now five years now, well, actually six years, I think, um, since Randy Babbitt, then administrator, resigned um, after getting um, caught in a bogus DUI. Oh, yeah, that's charge. right. I forgot about that. Yeah, okay. Um, in, in, in Northern Virginia. And um, the charge was later thrown out as being bogus. Yeah. Yeah. But but uh, public opinion, uh, peer pressure, whatever, uh, convinced Babbitt to resign. Uh, Huerta, at the time, was deputy administrator and later was made full administrator by the Obama administration mm-hmm. and has served out his, five, his full five-year term. Um, before we wrap this up, just, I'm going to put you on the spot, and either of you can jump in on this, um, but um, did Huerta do a good job? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, there are a lot of things that he could have done differently, or or he could have you know paid more attention to GA on or something like that. But um, I'm not really sure what they might be, um, because what did we get during Huerta's tenure? We got Basic Med, we got a Part Twenty Three rewrite. We got a bunch of other stuff. We got a, a lot of of uh, lightening up, if you will, instead of tightening up, lightening up of, of various um, regulatory schemes, various policies uh, at the FAA. The um, uh, perhaps the best one that comes to mind is um, well, two two come to mind. One is the uh, use of angle of attack indicators as supplemental instrumentation for aircraft not requiring them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, that's the, the, the paperwork burden on that was made uh, into a logbook entry. Um, whereas um, before that point, um, it would have been an STC and, and a bunch of other stuff going on, a bunch of other paperwork requirements. Um, and we also saw within the last year and a half we saw this explosion, if you will, of um, non-certified avionics uh, being um, from Dynon and from Garmin uh, specifically being um, um, approved by the FAA for use as primary instrumentation. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that stuff is unheard of. Okay, and, and from, is, from those is, stand, yeah, from those standpoints, where it did a great job. Yeah, yeah. David, go ahead, and David. It, that's that uh, change in policy toward uh, non-TSO uh, equipment being approved for use in certificated airplanes is a huge door open that's already having a, a positive impact. Uh, where to oversaw that. We got uh, the, the completion of the uh, uh, ADSB network under his tenure, mm-hmm. the ground network, and, and, and that going operational. Uh, it's, it's, the guy's done a good job. He's not a dynamic <laughs> personality yeah. like we've seen in other administrators, but he gets the stuff done, and that's more important than being a, a talent on the Sunday morning talk show circuit. Yeah, so. uh, he, he was he was a straight shooter. I, I had the opportunity to interview him once or twice, and um, he would he would use 
um, language that would not be very specific. But if you read between the lines of what he was saying, it was clear uh, what his intent was. And um, that's that's rare uh, um, for an FAA administrator, in my experience. I've, I've interviewed a couple of them, so has David. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, any other shout-outs you want to throw in here, or are we done? I think fork time. I, 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 give me you give go. me two minutes. Two minutes. This isn't a shout. This isn't a shout out. It's a shout at. Okay. <laughs> oh, all right. Here we go. Yeah. I want to shout at the leadership of the House Veterans Affairs Committee uh-huh. over House Resolution forty-one forty-nine which is going to make it difficult for veterans to use their GI benefits for pilot training. Mm-hmm. Jesus. They're basically, they, this law would basically undercut the, the uh, efforts of thousands of veterans that want to advance their training past the private pilot stage up to the pro level. And if there is a worse time to be discouraging people from going into flying, it's, it, I can't imagine it. We've got a shortage of pilots in the military. We've got a shortage of pilots in business aviation. The airlines are suffering from a shortage of pilots. And and this bill would undercut the efforts of, uh, well, right now, about 1,700 veterans that would stand to have their uh, educations uh, undercut if this bill became law and the funding for pilot training was reduced. Uh, so, guys... Uh, let me be specific here. <laughs> Mr. Charles Ulysses Farley. Mr. Chairman Phil Rowe from Tennessee and his ranking member Tim Waltz from Minnesota. Guys, get your heads out of the jet pipe and wake up that this is not what the country needs right now. And if you've got problems with the money that it costs, I suggest you rethink the vote that you just did for the tax cut because that one and a half trillion dollars, there could have been a few hundred million go to making sure that we've got pilots to staff all the jobs that are open right now. And you want to do this before we start hiring out to overseas pilots and get the complication of all the security hoops that they've got to jump through to come over here and fly professionally. So guys, get your act together, shoot this change down keep the door open for veterans that want to become professional aviators. The country needs it. And I'm done. Very good. Thank you, David. So, okay. Well, I think that, um, I think doing a podcast must be like riding a bicycle because you kind of <laughs> don't forget. Started out a little rocky, yeah, but you know, we, we closed with a bang. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we did. Um, and you know, I had a little low speed wobble there. Yeah, and let's let's not let's not wait another eight weeks to do another one. Let's 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 you know, no. Let's let's do this again sometime soon. Anyways, want to thank you guys for uh, for taking some time uh, and chatting. It's uh, it's always a pleasure, and uh, and and let's do it more often. Uh, uh, Jeb Burnside. Jeb is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, what have you been working on? 
I, uh, earlier this week, stuck the fork in um, the February issue. Earlier this week, this is Monday. So uh, last week, excuse me, mm-hmm. stuck the fork in the February issue of Aviation Safety Magazine. Uh, the cover story deals with uh, what happens when there's two pilots trying to fly the same airplane at the same time. I <laughs> uh, uh, have a, a very good uh, interview-based article um, on um, uh, um, flying freight. Uh, interviewed a old-time freight dog. I didn't do it. Mike Hart, one of my contributors, did. Um, several, you know, obviously several other uh, stories in there, um, and uh, that's kind of what I've been doing uh, since the holidays. Um, Let's see. Uh, gearing up for some travel uh, to some other uh, air shows. Gearing up for the March issue of Aviation Safety, and um, working on the airplane when I in the, in the spare time that I have. Yeah. So that's that's what's going on. And you're, and you're putting all the child safety things back in place in your house because I'm on my way down. You know. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> Lock up gotta the liquor hide cabinet. The, Lock, I was going to say, got to hide the liquor. <laughs> Lock up the liquor cabinet. <laughs> Jeb, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, uh, jburnside.com is the personal website, but there's nothing there, so don't waste your time. There's a great picture. Uh, of you. There's a great, picture. great, great picture of me from the '90s. So, um, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which, by definition, is a great picture, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, AviationSafetyMagazine.com is the magazine's website. Um, you can also find me running around somewhere at AvWeb, maybe at uh, GeneralAviationNews.com, uh, AEA.net, AIN Online, uh, and the Twitter machine where I'm Burnside J. Very good. Thank you. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's Av Buyer magazine. David, what have you been working on? Well, I got a uh, per normal. I've got a, a, a piece, actually two pieces in this month's uh, avionics news, which just came in the mail uh, over the weekend, and uh, I'll I'll uh, plug one of them. Uh, the headline is "Cruise Altitude Tranquility." And it looks at the uh, options, uh, growing options for in-flight internet and in-flight entertainment connectivity for light aircraft. And that's in the uh, January avionics news. Cool. And where can people find all this stuff on the Internet? Uh, This on the Internet. You can find the uh, magazine at uh, AEA.net, as Jeb just mentioned. I think this story starts on page 16 or 17, something like that. Uh, you can find me at avbuyer.com, where my weekly uh, blog on business aviation appears just about every Friday. Uh, sometimes the holidays cause a little hiccup, and what's supposed to run on Friday doesn't show up until Monday, but we'll live with that. Uh, avbuyer.com is a regular slot for my uh, print writing. Uh, my Twitter uh, machine uh, handle is uh, Real Higdon, and uh, you can just Google me and, and roll the dice and find some old stuff that I've done for Flight International or AvWeb or kit planes or something like that. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a digital media producer. Uh, like I said earlier, I'm uh, in the midst of my uh, annual migration south uh, for uh, a few weeks of, uh, of warm weather. 
to uh, escape the uh, New England winter. Um, I'm actually going to I'm I'm going to be in in Florida for about three weeks. Part of that with Jeb, and part of that on a, on a work job. Um, then I'm actually going from Florida to California, where I'm going to visit our pal uh, Will Hawkins for a while, and, uh, and and get a little bit of warm weather out in California, and then return to Florida for another job. So uh, so I'm I'm kind of away from home for now, and that suits me just fine because it's been like two degrees highs every day for a while now. And, uh, um, but uh, I, like I said, I was uh, I visited the uh, Udvar Hazi Museum and uh, shot Udvar Hazi <laughs> and uh, uh, and shot some video, which I'm putting together. That'll appear on my YouTube channel at some point, and uh, some of the other things that I do on this trip uh, will probably get videoed and uh, and go onto YouTube as well, uh, and uh, just kind of working on those kinds of projects. So. Uh, uh, we're going to stop by Sebring for a little bit uh, later in the month. So, uh, just kind of getting ready for for these winter activities, like I usually do. Uh, you can find me on the internet uh, at uh, my main website is uh, jackhodgson.com, and on Twitter I am uh, Jack Hodgson. So, and also on YouTube, it's uh, YouTube.com/slash Jack Hodgson. Anyways, hey David, was there uh, before we before we go? Is there one thing you wanted to tell us that we haven't heard in in way too long? Well, another year to get to, to another year to postpone aging by going flying because the same as always, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. Not that we feel strongly about that, of course. 